You know, like what Christ said, he said, I earnestly desired to share this Passover with you. You don't know how much I earnestly desire, want to share with you what God has been downloading into me the last three or four weeks. So I, I know it's a little late. We've gone a little bit long here. I hope that you'll bear with me because I believe this is something that this body needs to hear. So I'm going to get with that. However, first, before we get started, there's one thing I like to do in my Sunday school class. All of you who have been there with me before know that I like declarations. And I love to declare this one because this really means a whole lot to us as this group. So, if you will, please stand up. When you declare something, what do you want to do? You want people to know about it, right? Yes. And, and guess what? Standing up. It helps get those lungs out. People pay attention to you. You're standing up. You're like a lighthouse. Or lightning rod. I mean, you can get whatever, give or receive, that type of thing. But I want you to be able to declare with authority. It is a privilege that we have to be able to speak this out so that God can act upon it. And this is something I really, we, we used to declare this in Sunday school, and I think it really has made an impact and a difference on this body. You guys did not know what those people were doing, declaring for you in here, and how that has impacted your life. So, if you follow along with me, I don't have it up here because I want you to listen, I want you to hear it. So, first thing, we declare. We, we declare. We have dynamic relationships. We have dynamic relationships. With spiritual fathers and mothers. Spiritual fathers and mothers. And sons and daughters. And sons and daughters. We are a family. We are a family. A community called out together. A community called out together. Not just an organization. Not just an organization. We are glory carrying. We are glory carrying. Sons and daughters of the King. Sons and daughters of the King. Let His kingdom come. Let His kingdom come. All right, you may be seated. You all may not have realized it, but you just acted in the authority that has been given to you through Jesus Christ. And I want to kind of say to you today, what I'm going to talk about is about authority. And I'm going to give you, I don't call it the punchline, the final word. We're going to talk about Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to give you what really God imparted to me about only about 14 hours ago. I'm going to give you, I guess, the punchline or the main thing I want you to understand from today. Because it is so important you get it. All right? And what that is specifically, ah, I can find my note here, because I had to write all this stuff down. It was amazing how it came about. The amount of faith that you possess is equal to the amount of authority that you exercise. Chris Valentin would have said, that's a good word. <laughs> that is. So I'm going to say it again. The amount of faith that you possess is equal to the amount of authority that you exercise. That's been, in other words, your faith will never exceed your authority. 
So we're going to look at a man under authority, this centurion here in Luke 7, verses, uh, Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. It's also talked about in Matthew chapter 8. So we're going to go through this. I'm going to explain to you how I believe that this is important, that this is what really is coming about. And the reason why I really believe that is because the most important verse between Luke 7, 1 through 10 is verse 9. And why do I think that is most important? Because in my Bible, it's written in red. The Lord God declared it. And so that's what we're going to get into. So, first off, let's go to Luke chapter 7, verse 12. No, before I get into that. Like I said, I think God spoke to me about this last evening. I had been talking with um, friends of ours. We were gone last weekend over at Chapel Hill. Went to Bill and Ann Logan's house over there. I don't know if you all know them, but they are friends to this local congregation. They really are. They're great friends. They pray for you. Uh, those of you who may not know them, do you know Dick and Beth Osgood? Yes. Dick and Beth both spent their final days on this earth at Bill and Ann's home. They nursed them. They prayed for them. They laid their hands on them before they died and they passed away in Chapel Hill in their, in their house. So anyway, I was over there last weekend and I talked to Ann about it and said, I'm going to be talking and I'm going to be speaking about Luke 7, 1 through 10. And I started talking to her. This is what I was going to share. I talked with my wife, Elise. Isn't that amazing? You speak to our wives. You know, it's all, gentlemen, if you don't speak to your wife about what your plans are, if you don't speak to your wife about what you, you're not going to get some good counsel back. Do it. So I spoke with her and I told her, this is what this is what God, God is putting in my heart. This is what I really want to say. And so I, I laid all that out for her. I was at Winston-Salem until yesterday afternoon. I had a conference there. And driving back, I spoke to my oldest daughter, Joni, who lives in St. Louis. I said, this is what I really want to say. This is what God is imparting to me. And then guess what? After I got home, this is what happened. God told me, he said, you're going to speak about... The amount of faith you possess is equal to the amount of the authorization you exercise. I had been looking, you know, because I had been looking at different things. You know, there are great preachers on YouTube. And I wanted to see what some of the other teachers, had, the Bible teachers, had been speaking about this passage and the one in Matthew chapter 8, just to get a little bit more background and see a few other things like that. And I talked with Rick Renner. I don't know if any of you know him. This, he, he had a nice little he had a nice talk about this back in September of 2012, and his focus was on the miracle, and that is really good. And it is it is it miracles are an impact. The fact that you are bringing someone to complete and total health who has been paralyzed is an amazing thing. And that was, his, that was his focus on, on this thing. I thought, okay, that's all well and good, but that really doesn't ring true with what I think we have to be talking about. You know, and if, and if, and if all that if it came out of here, if that's all that came out of this thing, that's still a good outcome. That is still a good teaching. And then I looked at, it was a Paul Scanlon, whatever he's with, Hillsong Church in Cardiff in England. I looked at what he said. And he was going through here, and his whole thing was the fact that Jesus was just amazed about what he had said as far as the centurion saying, I'm a man under authority, you're a man under authority, all you have to do is say the word. And then amazed was really good. But no, I think really what God is speaking here 
Because he says it right there, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The centurion is talking about authority. Jesus is talking about faith. And when I see those two together, I don't see how they get torn apart. I really don't. I believe the amount of faith you possess is equal to the amount of authority you are exercising. And that's what came about. I'm gonna, and if you, if you doubt me, let's go to James chapter 2. Verse 14. What use, is, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Are you exercising your authority? What happens when you exercise authority? Things happen, right? There has to be. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. No, no. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I think it all ties together. I don't think you can have faith without being able to exercise the authority you have in Jesus Christ. Having that knowledge of exercising that authority, and by doing that, your faith is going to grow. So, let's get, we're going to get back up to that verse, and I think I'm going to explain some things, and I think you're going to believe, or you're going to understand it that way as we go along. So, let's go ahead, and let's start reading in, in chapter 7, verse 1. When he, talking about Jesus, had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Okay, now where was Jesus at this time just before this? Well, we know the story is also in Matthew chapter 8. What happened in verse chapters 5, 6, and 7 prior to Matthew chapter 8 where the centurion comes to Jesus? That's his great sermon. He's talking about the Beatitudes and all those different things. And so he had completed all his discourse and then he went to Capernaum. He had all this multitude of people following him. And that's, he went to Capernaum. And Capernaum is... That's the only thing I don't like about having your, the Bible on your phone. You don't have maps in the back. Right? You don't have maps in the back. That's cool. You can, it's always fun to know what's going on with the lay of the land, right? Where everything's happening. Because it's important. Capernaum is up on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it, it actually is supposed to be City of Nahum, is what, it was, is what it's supposed to be named for, one of the ancient prophets. Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee. Why is that important? Because a man named Peter lived there. What did Peter do for a living? He fished. Now, if Peter was living in the middle of Arizona, would he have been a fisherman? No. Probably not. You've got to live on a place. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty big. I got to see it from northern Jordan. I got to look out over across down in the valley when I was over in the Middle East. It was pretty cool. That's a pretty big lake. See, so, Capernaum is, is important. Peter is there. Where did Jesus live? In Peter's house. Peter's house is in Capernaum. In fact, if you go Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it says it's his city. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Why does he call Capernaum his city? Why? Because what happened to a prophet that preaches in his own, own town? What happened in, in Nazareth when he went back there? They wanted to throw him off the hill. Capernaum became his city. Why do you think Jesus went there after speaking all the people? Because he's going home. He was headed back for some rest. He was heading back to deal with these people. So, 
Let's read verse 2. And a certain sin, and well, the other thing is I want to bring up about Capernaum, because it's important to know where it is, why it's there. Capernaum is way, all the way up in the northern part of Israel, right? What's to the north of the Sea of Galilee? In, remember your geography? What's up on the coast of the Mediterranean coast up there, north and to the west of the Sea of Galilee? What nation is there? Syria. Well, you got Syria, but you also got Lebanon with the Phoenicians. This was a major trade route where people would come in from Syria in through Capernaum to come into Israel so they could trade. That gives us a reason for having a centurion there. The Romans were an occupying force, right? What are they there for? They're to make sure that the government goes well, that everything seems, you know, we keep the Jews under control. But the other thing is, they got to get taxes. They got to make sure everybody coming across the border is paying their tariff as they're bringing all their stuff in because the Roman government, now like our government, likes to take in taxes, that type of thing. So, Capernaum is important, and that's why we have a centurion there. And it says in verse 2, and a certain centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. So we have a centurion who's there. Do you know what a centurion is? Huh? He's a soldier. Exactly. From where? The Roman army. The occupying force that is in Israel. Specifically, a centurion was someone who was in charge of something around a hundred men. And thus the name. You know, we have a cent. There's one hundred cents to a dollar, right? How many years are in a century? We just take that word. A centurion was in charge of approximately 100 men. We say approximately because sometimes it's only 80, and sometimes it's 120 or maybe more. It depends on the number of cohorts that were given to this man. So the centurion was in charge of about 100 men, which equates to about a company commander in the United States Army or the United States Marine Corps. We have about 100 men that are underneath us as we are working. That's part of the reason why Sam wanted me to speak today, because I have been in positions of authority that this centurion has been in. A long time ago, I enlisted in the United States Army National Guard. So I was a private. <laughs> then over time, I grew in rank up to the rank of Staff Sergeant in E6. From there, I went through Officer Candidate School. And I became a Second Lieutenant in the United States Army. I, finished, I had company command as a captain. It was about 100 men, but before that I had a rifle platoon, a mortar platoon, and a weapons platoon. I became an executive officer of a rifle company over in Germany while we were watching a Warsaw Pact watching us. So over time, then I became a staff officer, became a major in the United States Army, and eventually I felt God leading me to get out. And so I resigned my commission, came off active duty, came up here without a job. Well, God was leading me to come up here. It was very interesting. Since I've been up here, I got to work at DuPont. I was a senior operator and also an operator specialist at DuPont. When that went away, I was also then part of the Industrial Fire Brigade out there. And in my own fire department, I was elected to assistant chief. I have since, since I got a little older and I'm no longer able to go in as well to attack the flames as I had been in the past. <laughs> Tell you what, I, I've stepped down now, I'm a safety officer. So I've had authority. I've been in places of authority. That's why Sam wanted me to speak about this today, because I think I can understand what the centurion's going through. I can understand that this man understands authority because I have been under authority as a private. I have been in authority, both under a full colonel, 
who was my boss, and captains and other enlisted that were under me when I was a senior Iraqi analyst while we were watching the Iraqi army rebuild after the end of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We were putting out all the information as far as this is what the Iraqi army has. This is what we believe they have. And when the CIA decided they did not agree with us, myself and another man went up there. We said, this is all our information. They changed theirs to ours. Because I had great people working for me. So I haven't been authority. So I understand the authority that this centurion is talking about here. So let's get back to verse 2. A certain centurion. Okay, well first let's, let's see what, what are the qualifications to be a centurion in the first place. It's important to understand who this man was. Because he's just not a run-of-the-mill Roman soldier. Do you know how long you had to serve in the Roman army when you were enlisted or when you were put into the, into the army? Twenty-five years. Twenty-five years. That's a long time. That's a very long time. And while you're in there, you're not allowed to marry you are not allowed to marry. So a centurion, and so when you look at it, a centurion has been there for a while. The qualifications are, you first, you must be at least 30 years old. You also need to know how to read and write. You have your own tent, your own horse, and you have been, you've been able to serve in the army for a long time. So we know this guy, you've got to be at least 30 years old. Okay, let's just say that he entered the army at 18. It may have been earlier than that, we don't know. So he'd probably been serving in the army Roman army for at least 12 years. Minimum for him to even have the initial qualifications to become a centurion. So this guy is not a run-of-the-mill, he's not a wet-behind-the-years young lieutenant or an ensign who is about 22 years old, just got out of the West Point or Annapolis and coming in to take authority. This is a man who has been tried and true, has been under authority, has been working for many years, probably decades, because we're going to see a little bit later what he has done, who has been working this, he has experienced it, and he knows what he's talking about. Because the other thing is, a centurion was usually picked by the cohorts that he led. Do you want a guy leading you into battle that you don't trust? What are some of the qualifications you're going to want from him? Courage. Leadership. Wisdom. Loyalty, not just to the Rome, but to you. Because he's the one that's going to order you into battle. And he's going to deploy you the way he sees fit. And if he does it wrong, what's going to happen? You are going to die. So they are literally choosing a man who is, has their life in their hands. He has been tried. He has been tested. He has been proven. And they say, this is the man we want. He has been allowed to ascend to this level because he is someone they can trust. This is not just a flash in the pan. This is not a run-of-the-mill Roman army soldier. The thing is, you know, he's, he probably also served as an optio. That's not in here, but it was interesting. I was looking at a guy who'd been looking, looking at, good grief, I could tell you all the different, he says, when the Roman army went through this uh, reorganization, another reorganization, whatever, an optio is someone who acted like his second in command for a centurion, similar to a lieutenant. Somebody to have a platoon leader or executive officer of that century. In other words, he had also had to work his way up, not only through the ranks, but also through the officer corps, so that he would be able to properly 
exercise his authority over those people under him. You got that? This is not a relevant. This is somebody who's been through it. And that's why I really think, you know, when it says in Scripture, you really should lay hands and, and put into leadership people that are young in, in the Lord, right? We really shouldn't. Number one, you're going to be attacked as soon as you're a leader. You're going to face challenges and things you've never faced in your life. They're going to be coming at you from areas that are where you're weak. They're going to come at you from behind, from in front, whatever. You are going to be attacked. Why? Because you're, having, you're in leadership and authority. What does Satan want to do? He's not going to bother people that are just laying around and not doing anything, right? He wants to go after people that are doing something. Because you're impacting him. You're impacting his kingdom. He's going to come after you. We don't want to put people that are in those positions with, that we're, going to, we're putting them up to fail. We've got to put people in positions like the centurion who's been tried and found faithful. So, and when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So what had he been hearing? Let's look really quickly back in Matthew. Have you ever done this before where you all of a sudden forget where you were? Okay. Yeah. I got it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Sorry, verse 23. This is what he was hearing about Jesus, right? Because this is the ministry in Galilee. Ministry in Galilee. Capernaum is in Galilee, right? Off the Sea of Galilee. This is where that centurion probably was. Listen to what he was hearing. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and doing what? Healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria. Where is Capernaum? Right below Syria. What are we talking about? Trade routes from Syria, people coming in. Guess what? This word went out not just down into all the synagogues that are in Israel, went out into Syria as well. What happened? Because they heard it, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, Demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed all of them. And he healed all of them. Is that it? Great. The other thing he heard about him right at the very end of chapter seven of Matthew eight, at the end of the of his great uh, great speaking there, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. It says. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not one as the scribes. This is what this man was hearing. This is what the centurion was hearing. Someone teaching with authority, guess what? He can heal the very thing that is afflicting his slave. It doesn't say it here in Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. Go back to Matthew 8, and what does it say? He is afflicted with palsy. Now, if you're paralyzed, and, and see, and some Romans would, they had servants in their homes, that type of thing. The servants were owned. They were slaves of these Romans. What happens when one of your, let's see, one of your appliances, like your dishwasher in your kitchen, suddenly becomes defective and you can't fix it? Throw it out, get a new one. Some of the Romans would have done this with this slave. How long do you think you'd last if you're paralyzed outside that house? 
with no one to take care of you. I mean, you would literally be at the mercy of the weather, and of any wild animals, and in any and any evil person that would want to come along and take advantage of you. You would not survive. You can't even feed yourself. You can't get up to feed yourself. You can't go get water. You can't get anything. You just lay there and die. And then they take you and throw you on the refuse heap. But this centurion had love for this slave. It's very interesting. I don't know where some... I, I watched another one. I'm not going to give you his name. But Matthew chapter 8, it talks about what this Greek word is for this slave. And it literally means boy or a lad. Now we know that Romans were, the Roman army were not allowed to marry, right? I don't know how he extrapolated this into being an illegitimate son because he couldn't marry because he was in the Roman army. Nowhere does it say that in this scripture. It's kind of like prophecy, right? You never add to what God tells you. You don't add to it. Don't add to Scripture. Good. The Scripture was provided by men who were inspired by God. If they had wanted it to be His Son or illegitimate Son, it doesn't matter which way, had they wanted it to be that way, they would have said so. It was a slave. Probably a young boy who lived in his house. He saw value in him. He wanted him to live. He heard about Jesus. You heard what Jesus was doing. And guess what? Specifically, Jesus heals the, par the paralysis. Guess what he wants to do? Can't do anything else. What? He's got to make sure that Jesus understands it, right? He understands. Jesus can help him in this situation. Okay? So he says, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when he had come to Jesus... They earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Do you know that the Jews felt that the Roman army, the Romans walking through their town, defiled the Jews? They knew they were talking about him, and yet look at the relationship he had. Number one, he has a relationship with Jewish elders that, were, that trusted him enough to go off to see Jesus, to tell him about this slave, to bring him back so that he could heal him. Number one, so he has that relationship. Obviously, this has been developing for a little while. You don't just automatically trust someone, especially someone who is an occupying army in your country. You don't automatically trust it unless you've given them reason to it for over time. Right? Trust does not always come easily. It has to be earned. And trust can be quickly destroyed. It takes a long time to build up a reputation that's good. It takes that long to ruin it. He had developed this relationship enough with these Jewish elders, they went off and did that. The second thing is, what else is said? He loves this nation. He has proven to them. And guess what he also did? He, would, he, had, he was enough a man of enough means, he had enough authority, he had enough ability that he built their synagogue. Now get that. Think about it. He built the place where they would come to meet and he was never allowed to go into it. Because that would have defiled him. Because he was a pagan. 
you see how this is leading up? They've got a relationship with him. They understand him. So when they come to Jesus, what do they say? And they say, this is interesting, they, the elders, say this. This is really cool. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant him this. What does the centurion say of himself? I am not worthy. Don't let a man think more highly than he ought to think of himself. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He was living the principles of what we find in this book. He was living them out. Isn't that cool? So let's go on. So he, he says, he is worthy of reading grants. The other reason why he would probably not, and of course, in Matthew 8 it says he goes there. Now I can, ex I can explain to you after this, this is not what, that's not the purpose of my thing today. I'm not, I, I really believe both Matthew 8 and Luke 7 are both one and the same centurion. I think there's, a, there's a, just a few differences in there, but I think we can overcome those. I don't believe there's anything. I don't think Scripture is wrong. I don't think that there is a, a mistake here. I believe that he sent these, these men there, and he said that he is worthy to do that, worthy to have this done to him as, as he has said that word. Now, Jesus started on his way, so they did that. But he sent them because why? He said he wasn't worthy. What would have happened to Jesus if the centurion had gone to see Jesus? Jesus would have been defiled. Now, of course, we see him. Well, who did, who did Jesus eat with? Right. Taxpayers and sinners. Right? I don't think Christ worried about his reputation. Because he knew who he was. He knew who had sent him. He knew why he was here. Right? And he lived up to that. That was his single-minded focus. He wouldn't have worried about it. But the centurion was honoring Jesus by not going. Because he was honoring him because he did not want to see him defiled. He, he understood. He respected that authority that Jesus had. And he was going to do nothing to sully it. Because he understood. Okay. So, now Jesus started on his way. It's interesting. Because of the testimony of these Jewish elders. And that alone is what started Jesus on his way to go heal this slave in his house. That is pretty amazing. This man had a really good so he started on his way with them. And when he was already not far from the house, he'd been going for a while. Do you realize what it would have been like for Jesus to walk through these little little city streets in Capernaum? Capernaum? Okay, because we're talking about, remember, he'd already just done the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the Beatitudes out there. Multitudes followed him. If you look, it's very interesting. Look on YouTube. You can actually see what an old map of old Capernaum looked like. Have you ever been in the Middle East and been down some of those streets? When I was in Oman, I got to go through the spice, um, spice alleys there, spice souk. Souk literally means bazaar. You could put your hand on this side and your hand on that side and you're touching both walls. And in the middle of all this stuff, and it was, oh man, that was heavenly smells. Because you walk by and they just have these open stalls with all the spices and everything else. It was really cool. Go to Khan al-Halili down in, in Cairo. El Kakra. You go to Cairo and you go down through there, all through those little things. Those are not very big streets. 
houses were built. You I mean they didn't have a town zoning commission? <laughs> right? Build on your house how you want to. So he's got multitudes of people. How long would it take for him to get down through these little streets? All these people in front of him, all these people behind him, plus his disciples. And plus all the hangers on, the Pharisees and rebels, they got their spies out there because they want to see, what's Jesus going to do now that we can go ahead and go after him before it? You know, right? They're there. We know they're there because we see it all through Scripture. Jesus is coming to the house. And while he was still a little way off, uh, the centurion sent friends saying to him, you see, I'm, I'm sure he knew that Jesus was coming. It's a little town. Or I don't know if he was in that same town. It doesn't say exactly where he lived. But it was close enough. And if you see it, you know, the other thing is, think about it, he's probably going to have people, he's got servants in his home. Some of those servants are probably required to keep watch as to what's coming on, because guess what? If you have, what if his, you know, his general or whatever was coming to his house, he's going to have to receive him correctly. He's going to have to honor him, bring him into his house, give him a meal, that type of thing. He probably had servants that were standing on top of the rooftop. This is all my surmise. This is my opinion. Standing on, looking far off, watching to make sure things were, you know, coming, nothing coming in. And I'm sure they would have seen this multitude with Jesus. He knew what's going on. He sends out friends to tell him, Lord, this is cool, do not trouble yourself further. You don't have to come any closer. Why? For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Jesus doesn't think that. But the man, he said, he said, I'm not worthy. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. That's why he sent the Jewish elders. And this is the important part here. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too, this is an also, for I mean Christ is under authority as well. He's saying, he's equating Christ. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this man, one go, and he goes to another come, and he comes to my slave, do this, and he does it. Is Christ not under authority? Who is he under authority of? God the Father. Where did Christ ascend to when he rose from the dead? Did he ascend to the throne? Where does he sit? The right hand of God the Father Almighty. There is a place level in heaven. Christ is just a little lower than, than that. He sits at the right hand. He's the right hand man. That's the authority he wields. That's really, that's, that's really cool. But he says he met to a man under authority. What else I want to bring up? How do we know that Christ was under the authority of the Father? He said so. Huh? He said so. He said so. And when did he say it? Remember when he was baptized. Christ came up out of the water. What happened? Dove, right? Spirit came down. And out of the heavens, what happened? What was said? In a loud enough voice, everybody else could hear it. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that this is a, an official declaration of a Jewish father to his son? When his son would become of age, he would go out into the, the central square there of the city. He would place his hand on his son's head. And he would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
He is now entitled to enter into contracts. He is now entitled to enter into business in the name of his father. The authority has been passed on to him. Think about it. Christ was under authority. He says, think about it here too. He has with soldiers under me. What happened when Joshua was getting ready to cross the Jordan to go in to take the land for the nation of Israel? Who met him? Captain of the Lord's host. I literally believe that was Jesus standing there with him. He's the captain of the Lord's host. He is the one who has soldiers underneath him, correct? And he even says he could have asked for legions to take him off the cross. He is a man in authority. This man, this centurion, this pagan understood it. He understood it because he had been practicing this in the natural for almost all his life. And he saw the supernatural authority that Jesus had. Isn't that cool? Let's go on. I am a man in authority. It's very interesting. He says, he says to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to another, do this. Did Jesus not say those same things? At the end of Matthew, chapter 28, what does he say? Because I know you know this one. All authority has been given unto me. What does he tell him to do? Go and make disciples. Right? When did he say come? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When did he say do? Right? Christ had that authority. He says, all of you who love me will do. In other words, you will obey my You will do those things. Right? Do you see the parallel here? Do you think the centurion was wrong? No. He knew that authority. And he knew it was in the spiritual realm. And he told Christ, because he understood that authority, you don't have to come. You don't have to be here. Because I know that all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. Why does he know that? Well, why did the centurion have to learn to read and write? Because he's going to get orders from people over him. They're going to come by messenger or whatever. They're going to get a nice little letter. They're going to get on there. He's got to be able to read that. And because he's not always going to have the commander standing in front of him and saying, this is your mission. This is the commander's intent. And this is what I want to do. Here's the situation, enemy forces. Here's the situation you have, friendly forces. And now you're going to develop your mission statement, and you're going to do your operations order, and we're going to, we're going to make it happen. You don't always have that. You get that in paper. He reads and writes it. And guess what? At the bottom is a signature and or a seal. The authority of that letter did not require the presence of his commander. He understood his authority so much. Guess what? He did not require the presence of his commander. Therefore, since he understood that, because remember, he says, when I tell you to go, they go. He doesn't have to go with them to make sure they're gone. They already did it. When I say do this, he doesn't have to stand there and watch them do it. It's going to happen. So he knows that when Christ says the word, it will happen. Amen. The presence is not just because Jesus is there. 
The presence is in the word and the authority that Jesus had in the supernatural over sickness and he could bring the healing. Isn't that cool? Oh man. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Alright, we've got Jesus. Who is he? He's God, right? So that means he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and any other omni you can think of. <laughs> right? He marveled at this statement because he said, I'm a man under authority. You don't have to come. I already know that all you have to do is say the word. And it will happen. Now think about it. Up until this time, how was healing accomplished? And why do you think the Jewish elders were more than happy to go get Jesus and bring him back to the house? In fact, it says in there, remember just before Matthew 5, 6, uh, Matthew, yeah, 5, 6 and 7, talking about they were bringing people to him to what? Be healed. And Christ would go and he would heal them. This is a new thing. Brand new. And that's why Christ says he marveled at it. The Jewish elders, people that should have known this stuff. This is the way we always do things. We go get, okay, if we can't, we've got to get, gotta get the sick person up to Jesus, right? So he can heal him. And if we, if we can't get the sick person to Jesus, then we bring Jesus to him, us, and put him in the house, and then he'll heal him. You know, look at the guys that had to bring that paralytic, right? He was on his own, on his own little bed. They came, what did they have to do? They couldn't get into the house. The whole, you know, their mindset is all this. Okay, we've got to get him to Jesus so he can heal him. How are we going to do that? Kind of an odd thing. They decide to vandalize somebody's house, break the roof. No, listen, if, go to the Middle East, look at those things. It's cool. It's a mud roof. They've got it stuccoed up there. Underneath that is a bunch of rushes. Underneath that is a bunch of cross slashes of, of wood and that type of thing. Get a sledgehammer up there. You can break through this roof. Of course you can have mud roofs. It's a desert. It doesn't wash away. They do have to put more on all the time. But anyway, these guys get up there. What do they do? They break a hole in this guy's roof over the ceiling, over where he's preaching. Sam stand up and preaching, and now the... <laughs> breaking the roof. And then they lower this guy down with ropes. In the middle of the service. I like what Scan would say. He said, okay, and the guy's down here now on the ground. He's paralyzed, right? He's not getting up. And I'm saying, I'm okay, guys. No, he's down there. Jesus didn't say, uh, you know there's a line. <laughs> We're doing all of our we're doing all our prayers afterwards. We're gonna have a line here, and you're not supposed to cut the line. He didn't tell him that. He didn't say, um, "This is the guy from Scam." He says, "I really can't heal you because I don't condone vandalism. And if I heal you right now, all these Pharisees are on him and say, "Oh, he heals people that come around and destroy people's personal property." Oh man! <laughs> Think about it. No, Christ says. He's down there. He said, what does he do? He healed. Rise up. He said, boom. High five. I can do that. I can do that. Don't you think, you know, and then we know that, we know that the serpent was healed. Right? 
Isn't that cool? But don't you think the disciples were sitting around the campfires that night talking to Christ? Lord God, Lord Jesus, we've been hiking all over this country for so long. And you say, all he had to do was send the word and they're healed. Why didn't you tell us this was an option? You didn't ask. You didn't ask. Kind of thinks about some other outlandish things are in the Bible too, right? Remember Joshua had to defeat the enemy? I think it was the Amalekites. Guess what he had to do? He needed to kill them all before nightfall came. Because the nightfall comes, they can run off and hide. And then come back and hit them later. Right? So what does he do? Yeah! He's, the sun stood still. Do you understand that God changed gravitational forces of this entire solar system to make the sun stand still so that Joshua, this little guy that... You know, for him to kill the rest of the enemy. Joshua was standing in the authority he had learned under Moses. Joshua was the one that was closest to Moses when he reached, when he got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Joshua was his right-hand man. He learned authority watching Moses. He was given the authority to lead the nation into Israel. He was fighting the enemy. And he said, we need more time. Stop the sun. If he had gone to his general staff, they would have kind of gone, sunstroke, uh, let's, let's get Josh back over here in the shade and give him some water. <laughs> Joshua was standing in his authority. God honored it by halting the sun, the moon, the rotation of the earth all around the sun, and therefore he had to stop Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto's no longer a planet, but you know. <laughs> Poor Pluto. If you watch Psych, you know that's anyway. <laughs> he did that for that man because he knew his authority. Think about it. The amount of faith you possess is equal to the amount of authority you exercise. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you may speak to the mountain and it will be cast into the sea. And that would be based on the amount of authority that you have been exercising in your life. Right? Isn't that cool? That's cool. What about the woman with the hemorrhage? Something never been done before either. Right? She knew the authority Jesus had. She knew Jesus could heal her. But guess what? She had that issue. She couldn't come up to him because then he would be unclean. In fact, when she went around town, she thought he'd say, just like the lepers, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine doing that sort of constant speaking about taking every thought captive? If you had to remind yourself every day as you're walking everywhere you go that you are unclean. She could not go to the temple. She could not meet with other fellow believers. She could not do that. But she knew. She knew the authority, the supernatural authority that Jesus Christ had, that if all she did was touch the hem of his garment, then she would be healed. How many other people were touching him that day? He was being jostled everywhere. But where did the healing go? To her. 
She was trusting in the authority of Jesus Christ. She had the authority to be able to touch his hem. The power went out of him, and he knew it. He felt it immediately. Turn around, who touched me? And everybody else, all the disciples, say, everybody's touching you. How do you know? What is going on? Right? Those are two unusual things that happened. Why? Because those people were standing in the authority given to them by Jesus. They were standing in that authority. Let me give you a couple of examples. You guys might have to go, I know I'm gone long. Do you mind if I give you for a few more examples and then we're going to give some practical application for you. Guess what? You know, you know all my life I've been growing in the grace and the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. I, tell you, I can understand grace and knowledge. You know, studying that type of thing. But grow in your faith. How do you grow in your faith? I think when God gave this to me, it's like, huh, ta-da! It's impressed to do some sort of magical you know, heavenly chime or something like that. An epiphany, right? If I exercise the authority I have in Jesus, as I continue to exercise that, what's going to happen? It's going to grow. And Jesus here says, I say to you, not even Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus equated his authority, his understanding of authority and the supernatural authority he had in Jesus Christ as great faith. I believe those two are locked together. I don't think you can take one from another. Please be like the Bereans. Check scripture to see if this be so. Because this is something that I, like I said, it's been less than a day since this was given to me. And I, and I, and I started going through and I cannot think of a single instance where this is not true. Because when Christ healed all those people, when Christ did everything, when Christ told the storm to be quiet, what happened? It quieted. Why? Because of his authority. That authority allowed him to have the faith to know that all he had to do was say, be quiet, be still, boom, it was. Right? What about Christ's authority over all the demons that he cast out? The Pharisees would say, well, you cast them out because of Beelzebub. You're part of the devil. No, I cast them out through the authority I have. Through my heavenly Father. And they must go. And guess what? They did. Because he knew his authority. And because he... It's very important. And that authority, his faith in God. You can have that same faith. By exercising your authority. Because basically, what is exercising your authority? Understanding your position in Jesus Christ and saying, this is going to happen, right? right? And that does what? It builds up your faith. Is Al um, Allison still here? Was she the one that stood up about four weeks ago who had the spirit of fear? Weren't you the one that stood up and had the spirit of fear? Right? What did you do? You proclaimed your authority in Jesus Christ, right? And when you did that, did that not strengthen your faith? Yes! Most of you know my daughter Carolyn, right? Carolyn walks with favor all the time, everywhere we go. If we go to a farmer's market, people come up to her and give her things. And we're not talking trinkets. We're talking people, jewelers and stuff. They're selling stuff, you know, 25, 30 bucks. They'll walk, I felt like I need to give this to you. You know, you're talking about the childlike faith. 
when he got in, you know, we got to come to Jesus as a child. What's Carolyn like? She is 27 years old, but she does have Down syndrome. Right? But guess what? She doesn't know it. She doesn't know it. She knows who she is in Jesus Christ. And she walks with that authority. You can have that too. In fact, she's gone this weekend because of the authority she walks in. I mean, it's, it's true. She goes to, she goes to camp with, uh, with other special needs adults. It's called Camp Blue Skies. Giving a plug for it right now, Camp Blue Skies. For all those special needs adults, you got to be 21 and older, you got to whatever. They got to go. She never got to go to camp when she was young, even though her brother and sisters. See, I've got five daughters and one son. You guys probably don't know all that. Anyway, they all got to go to camp. They all got to go to Living Waters. My son got to go to Philmont. I mean, they got to do Boy Scout Camp Still Lake. Carolyn didn't. Why? Was Carolyn. Being Carolyn, she's just going to see something, she's going to run off. And they didn't have enough people to watch her to run away. So she got to go to Camp Blue Skies. Well, she, as a camper, they invite her up to Camp Blue Skies Fundraiser, which is a fishing derby, up at Camp Harrison, up near, it's a YMCA camp up near Lenore. It is one of the top three camps in the United States for the YMCA. It is beautiful. It's gorgeous. So she was invited up there one time. Guess what? Fisherman said, we want Carolyn back. <laughs> Yeah, they usually try to, they used to do that around with different campers. We want Carolyn back. <laughs> so she's been there three times. And the last time she's up there, the, the director of the YMCA camp was there. And then guess what? He said, we've got an extra cabin here. Would she talked to Elise and said, would you and Carolyn like to come up for a mother-daughter weekend? Aww. Complimentary. Aww. They charge $850 for that. So Carolyn is up there enjoying her favor. <laughs> because she walks in that authority. She really does. I'll give you one more thing. We were at, what is that? Blue Moon Conference, right? Larry Randolph, Graham Cook, and Potter. Was his first? Don Potter. I think you probably heard some of those names before. Right? Carolyn got there and she says, I'm going to talk to all of them. <laughs> no, Elise and I both go, okay, let's just see what's going to happen. <laughs> she spoke it out in faith because that's what God was telling her. Yeah. And guess what? We got him checking the hotel. Guess who's there? Larry Randolph, right there in the middle of the thing. We didn't walk up to him, he walked up to us. <laughs> because guess who? Know who she would want to talk to, right? <laughs> Say it with me, Carolyn. So the next day, Carolyn's out there. She's worshiping in the back. You know she's been prayed for at Graham Cook's church out there in Vacaville in California, and she would be a worshiper. And she practices it at home. I'll tell you what, she is a worshiper. And she worships in spirit and in truth. There is no guile. There is no guile. Anyway, so the next day we're in there. We got this big old thing is we're out talking and talking to Jennifer. That's where I met Jennifer before we started coming here. We were at that conference. Well, Carolyn just arbitrarily walks up. <laughs> sits on the stage. <laughs> starts talking to Don Potter. 
cook yet. Well, the last day we're there, we're going to check out a hotel. Guess what? Grant Cook's in that same hotel. Grant Cook's down there eating breakfast. We're coming down to eat breakfast. I said, okay, Carolyn, sorry, we can't bother him while he's eating breakfast. You don't bother people like that. Good grief, he's got his stuff in Okay, well, you know, both police and I said, well, he, she may not get to be able to speak with everybody. So, Carolyn's in the back, doing her flags, worshiping. And as you guys are facing there, this would have been the stage. Don Potter would have been up there. Larry Randolph is already up there. Graham Cook hasn't come into the room yet. And they always came through that door right there and came right up onto the stage. That way he didn't have to get around everybody, you know. You know, he's got things in his mind. He's thinking about what's going on. He's thinking about what he's got to say because God is imparting to him what he wants the people to hear. Where does Graham Cook come out? Where is he coming in? You guess it. Carolyn's in the back, right about there. That's the door that opens up. He walks in. Carolyn's right there. Turns around. He walks up to Carolyn. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you want someone to pray for you, she will lay hands on you. Believe me, she speaks with power. Why? Because she has that simple faith. She knows who she is. And she walks with that authority. Yeah. And that authority that she exercises all the time shows the faith that she has. Yeah. I can tell you other stories about my oldest two daughters about 20 some odd years ago. Well, one of my, old, my second oldest daughter, Becky. Good name, right? <laughs> good name. Named after her aunt, Becky. They're just two peas in a pod, and I'll tell you what. Oh, anyway, Becky was being harassed. That evil spirit. Joni, my oldest daughter, was down at that time at uh, university, what is that one? At Bob Jones University. That was kind of a mistake because they don't believe in anyway. Whatever. Becky was being harassed. She knew what to do. She knew to speak to the spirit and proclaim the authority she had in Jesus Christ to leave her alone. But guess what? God knew that Becky needed a backup. He woke Joni up down in South Carolina. Joni woke up and said, Becky's in trouble. I need to pray. Both of them together proclaimed the name of Jesus, declared that evil spirit to be gone, and said, we are children of God. We have the blood of Jesus on us. You have no right here. You must leave. And it left her. And Joni called us the next morning and said, what happened last night? Do you not understand they were walking, they were living in that authority that allowed them to have the faith to be able to proclaim the gospel and, and send it on. Alright, so, all my life I've been wondering, how do I grow in faith? I mean, that's kind of a nebulous term, isn't it? Right? I can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Those are some things you can practice. I think God imparted this to me to give me an understanding, a practical way to help grow your faith. And that is to understand everything that Sam's been teaching us over these last weeks. What is your authority in Jesus Christ? What are you doing? And if you would start exercising that authority, if you would start saying to the, if you start saying to things that are problems, that is not part of me. That is not allowed. That is not what the plan was for me in Jesus Christ. If you would start exercising that, your faith will grow. I had to do that to myself. My, my wrist, my elbow was bothering me. It had been hurting me. In fact, when I shook hands with people, it hurt, and I, I was weak. So I had to say, you know, you can do it yourself. Lay hands on yourself. 
say, I can be healed. I am healed. This is getting better. And it is. I am watching it daily. And I'm saying, Lord God, you are still healing. You are still restoring. You are still refreshing me. You can do that on a daily basis. You can begin to proclaim the authority in Jesus over your life. And as you do that, you will grow in faith. And you may get to the point where we might see in the United States where Jesus is going to say, I'm amazed. Because this was a new thing that he understood in the supernatural. And wow, the Lord of the universe took note of it. You can grow in your faith. Why are you not? What's holding you back? Why don't you proclaim that? I mean, basically when you're doing those proclamations and when you're doing those things, exercising your authority, what are you doing? You're also exercising your faith. And you may not be very good at the very beginning. But you've got to start. What about the weightlifters in the Olympics who could pick up half a ton or a quarter ton of metal? Did they start out that way? No! They had to do some training. They had to get stronger and stronger weights. To get to the point where they built their body up to be able to handle it. What about someone running a marathon? Now you might be able to actually get through it, but I wouldn't guarantee how well you did the next day after that marathon. You might actually survive it, but you know, the next day you probably wouldn't get out of bed. You've got to train. And guess what? You've got to train it specifically, and you've got to start small. You're not going to go from couch potato to marathon runner without some sort of steps in between where you're working your way towards that goal. Same thing's going to happen with you as you are trying to work and you're trying to exercise the authority you have in Jesus Christ. You've got to start. You've got to start. And as you go along, you're going to realize you're going to see those things like my daughters. Evil spirits can leave them alone. You're going to see that you don't have a spirit of fear. You're going to see that you're going to be faithful enough. You're going to get into that water. Right? And over time, you will have that faith, the great faith, that the centurion had, what he would just ask for. Jesus to say, say the word, they're healed. So, one thing I want to do before we end. I'm sorry, I'm going to end it up right now. Stand up. Stehen Sie auf. They say in German. Get up. Get up. Because we're going to do another declaration. Why are we going to do another declaration? That's why I like Dan's preaching so much. Why? Because guess what? That is exercising authority. That is declaring who we are in Jesus Christ. What Jesus had done to us. That is taking every captive thought. Every thought captive. <laughs> Get it backwards. You know, all this stuff, I think, all comes together to this today. Amen. Everything we have done today meshed together. And like Gibbs said, you know, rule number nine, always have a knife. His other rule, one of his other rules, there are no coincidences. That's right. And we prayed specifically today for encounters with God, that God was going to have an impact, that people's lives were changed. And so I'm going to help you understand what you can do to start, to start exercising your authority. And one of those things is to make declarations. Yes. So, I would like to have you repeat after me and then we will finish. So, I am powerful. I am powerful. And what I believe changes the world. And what I believe changes the world. 
So today I declare. So today I For everything. Jesus' blood paid for everything. I will tell nations of what he has done. I will tell nations of what he has done. I am important. I am important. How he made me is amazing. How he made me is amazing. I was designed for worship. I was designed for worship. My mouth establishes praise to silence the enemy. My mouth establishes praise to silence the enemy. Everywhere I go, Everywhere I go becomes a perfect health zone. Becomes a perfect health zone. And, and with God, with This has been an amazing day. This has been amazing. If, if your life wasn't touched in some way today, go get a CPR or something. You might need an AED. I don't know, something wrong. All right, Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Lord God, your word teaches. Your word. That's really cool. We get the music and it says, you're almost thinking I'm almost done, right? Um, Lord God, we just thank you that you continue to remind us every day of how much you love us. That you remind us every day of the price you paid. Lord God, that you were willing to do that. That you were willing to give yourself up for us on the cross. Lord God, without that, as Dan said, without the first, without that, we have no hope. Thank you for helping us get right. And those who are not, get right. But Lord God, because we are yours, you don't want us to stagnate. You don't want us to just sit there and wallow and just stay where we are. You want us to move forward. You want us to stand in the place where we're supposed to stand. You want us to do the thing which you gifted us to do from the foundations of the earth. Help us to be faithful in that. And by being faithful, going to exercise the authority you have given us. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We thank you for those who have gone before us so we can look and we can be comforted and encouraged. We can read your word and we can see the authority that Paul has because every time he writes, I, Paul, is an apostle. Let them know that he spoke with authority so we can understand and learn and we can then live. All old things have passed away. New things have come. We are new creations. And Lord God, we're going to walk forward from today on in your spirit, in your power, in your strength, and in your might. We thank you, Jesus.
I just had a sense that there has been some that have been just struggling and battling with some things uh, in your life here recently and that uh, you could use some prayer. You'd like for somebody to stand with you and believe and declare the word of the Lord over your life and to see you free. I heard the Lord tell me that today is a day of deliverance for some of you. So if you need to be delivered, if you've been tormented and been dealing with things that um, have been overwhelming, um, the Lord is giving an opportunity for some that want to get set free, get set free today. So if you need prayer, I'd like for you to come on up. If we get some of the prayer team, come on up. Um, so if you need some prayer over an issue where you need someone to stand with you and get uh, prayer, even for deliverance, I want to invite you to come on up. And uh, because I believe that we can exercise this authority today. And uh, because you got to remember, we have all the authority and the enemy has none. So as we exercise our authority, um, things that are oppressing us have to leave. It's not an option. So, Father, I pray now you would bless each and every one. You would cover them and protect them in the blood. That, Lord, you would give them your peace. And that, Lord, you would watch over them this whole week until we meet again. Father, we thank you for your word today. Let it go into fertile soil into our hearts, Lord, that it might produce fruit. And, Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. If you need prayer, I want you to come on up and let's stand with you in prayer. And if not, greet one another and um, let the person know beside you that uh, to look good.